Chapter Nine of the Blythedale Romance. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Blythedale Romance by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Chapter Nine. Hollingsworth, Zenobia, Priscilla. It is not, I apprehend, a healthy kind of mental occupation to devote ourselves too exclusively to the study of individual men and women. If the person under examination be oneself, the result is pretty certain to be diseased action of the heart, almost before we can snatch a second glance. Or if we take the freedom to put a friend under our microscope, we thereby insulate him from many of his true relations, magnify his peculiarities, inevitably tear him into parts, and, of course, patch him very clumsily together again. What wonder, then, should we be frightened by the aspect of a monster, which, after all, though we can point to every feature of his deformity in the real personage, may be said to have been created mainly by ourselves. Thus, as my conscience has often whispered me, I did Hollingsworth a great wrong by prying into his character, and am perhaps doing him as great a one at this moment by putting faith in the discoveries which I seemed to make but I could not help it. Had I loved him less, I might have used him better. He and Zenobia and Priscilla, both for their own sakes and as connected with him, were separated from the rest of the community to my imagination, and stood forth as the indices of a problem which it was my business to solve. Other associates had a portion of my time, other matters amused me, passing occurrences carried me along with them while they lasted. But here was the vortex of my meditations, around which they revolved, and whitherward they too continually tended. In the midst of cheerful society I had often a feeling of loneliness, for it was impossible not to be sensible that while these three characters figured so largely on my private theatre, I, though probably reckoned as a friend by all, was at best but a secondary or tertiary personage with either of them. I loved Hollingsworth, as has already been enough expressed, but it impressed me more and more that there was a stern and dreadful peculiarity in this man, such as could not prove otherwise than pernicious to the happiness of those who should be drawn into too intimate a connection with him he was not altogether human. There was something else in Hollingsworth besides flesh and blood and sympathies and affections and celestial spirit. This is always true of those men who have surrendered themselves to an overruling purpose. It does not so much impel them from without, nor even operate as a motive power within, but grows incorporate with all that they think and feel, and finally converts them into little else save that one principle. When such begins to be the predicament, it is not cowardice but wisdom to avoid these victims. They have no heart, no sympathy, no reason, no conscience. They will keep no friend unless he make himself the mirror of their purpose. They will smite and slay you and trample your dead corpse underfoot all the more readily if you take the first step with them and cannot take the second and the third and every other step of their terribly straight path. 
They have an idol to which they consecrate themselves high priest, and deem it holy work to offer sacrifices of whatever is most precious, and never once seem to suspect so cunning has the devil been with them, that this false deity, in whose iron features, immitigable to all the rest of mankind, they see only benignity and love, is but a spectrum of the very priest himself, projected upon the surrounding darkness. And the higher and purer the original object, and the more unselfishly it may have been taken up, the slighter is the probability that they can be led to recognize the process by which godlike benevolence has been debased into all-devouring egotism. Of course I am perfectly aware that the above statement is exaggerated in the attempt to make it adequate. Professed philanthropists have gone far, but no originally good man, I presume, ever went quite so far as this. Let the reader abate whatever he deems fit. The paragraph may remain, however, both for its truth and its exaggeration, as strongly expressive of the tendencies which were really operative in Hollingsworth, and as exemplifying the kind of error into which my mode of observation was calculated to lead me. The issue was that in solitude I often shuddered at my friend. In my recollection of his dark and impressive countenance, the features grew more sternly prominent than the reality, duskier in their depth and shadow, and more lurid in their light. The frown that had merely flitted across his brow seemed to have contorted it with an adamantine wrinkle. On meeting him again, I was often filled with remorse when his deep eyes beamed kindly upon me, as with the glow of a household fire that was burning in a cave. He is a man after all, thought I, his maker's own truest image, a philanthropic man, not that steel engine of the devil's contrivance, a philanthropist. But in my wood-walks and in my silent chamber, the dark face frowned at me again. When a young girl comes within the sphere of such a man, she is as perilously situated as the maiden whom, in the old classical myths, the people used to expose to a dragon. If I had any duty whatever in reference to Hollingsworth, it was to endeavor to save Priscilla from that kind of personal worship which her sex is generally prone to lavish upon saints and heroes. It often requires but one smile out of the hero's eyes into the girl's or woman's heart to transform this devotion from a sentiment of the highest approval and confidence into passionate love. Now Hollingsworth smiled much upon Priscilla, more than upon any other person. If she thought him beautiful, it was no wonder. I often thought him so, with the expression of tender human care and gentlest sympathy, which she alone seemed to have power to call out upon his features. Zenobia, I suspect, would have given her eyes, bright as they were, for such a look. It was the least that our poor Priscilla could do to give her heart for a great many of them. There was the more danger of this inasmuch as the footing on which we all associated at Blythedale was widely different from that of conventional society. 
while inclining us to the soft affections of the golden age it seemed to authorize any individual of either sex to fall in love with any other regardless of what would elsewhere be judged suitable and prudent accordingly the tender passion was very rife among us in various degrees of mildness or virulence but mostly passing away with the state of things that had given it origin this was all well enough but for a girl like priscilla and a woman like zenobia to jostle one another in their love of a man like hollingsworth was likely to be no child's play had i been as cold-hearted as i sometimes thought myself nothing would have interested me more than to witness the play of passions that must thus have been evolved but in honest truth i would really have gone far to save priscilla at least from the catastrophe in which such a drama would be apt to terminate priscilla had now grown to be a very pretty girl and still kept budding and blossoming and daily putting on some new charm which you no sooner became sensible of than you thought it worth all that she had previously possessed so unformed vague and without substance as she had come to us it seemed as if we could see nature shaping out a woman before our very eyes and yet had only a more reverential sense of the mystery of a woman's soul and frame yesterday her cheek was pale to-day it had a bloom priscilla's smile like a baby's first one was a wondrous novelty her imperfections and shortcomings affected me with a kind of playful pathos which was as absolutely bewitching a sensation as ever i experienced after she had been a month or two at blithedale her animal spirits waxed high and kept her pretty constantly in a state of bubble and ferment impelling her to far more bodily activity than she had yet strength to endure she was very fond of playing with the other girls out of doors there is hardly another sight in the world so pretty as that of a company of young girls almost women grown at play and so giving themselves up to their airy impulse that their tiptoes barely touch the ground girls are incomparably wilder and more effervescent than boys more untamable and regardless of rule and limit with an ever-shifting variety breaking continually into new modes of fun yet with a harmonious propriety through all their steps their voices appear free as the wind but keep consonance with a strain of music inaudible to us young men and boys on the other hand play according to recognized law old traditionary games permitting no caprioles of fancy but with scope enough for the outbreak of savage instincts for young or old in play or in earnest man is prone to be a brute especially is it delightful to see a vigorous young girl run a race with her head thrown back her limbs moving more friskily than they need and an air between that of a bird and a young colt but priscilla's peculiar charm in a foot race was the weakness and irregularity with which she ran growing up without exercise except to her poor little fingers she had never yet acquired the perfect use of her legs setting buoyantly forth therefore as if no rival less swift than atlanta could compete with her she ran falteringly and often tumbled on the grass 
Such an incident, though it seems too slight to think of, was a thing to laugh at, but which brought the water into one's eyes, and lingered in the memory after far greater joys and sorrows were wept out of it as antiquated trash. Priscilla's life, as I beheld it, was full of trifles that affected me in just this way. When she had come to be quite at home among us, I used to fancy that Priscilla played more pranks and perpetrated more mischief than any other girl in the community. For example, I once heard Silas Foster, in a very gruff voice, threatening to rivet three horseshoes round Priscilla's neck and chain her to a post, because she, with some other young people, had clambered upon a load of hay and caused it to slide off the cart. How she made her peace I never knew, but very soon afterwards I saw old Silas with his brawny hands round Priscilla's waist, swinging her to and fro, and finally depositing her on one of the oxen to take her first lessons in riding. She met with terrible mishaps in her efforts to milk a cow. She let the poultry into the garden. She generally spoilt whatever part of the dinner she took in charge. She broke crockery. She dropped our biggest water-pitcher into the well, and except with her needle and those little wooden instruments for purse-making, was as unserviceable a member of society as any young lady in the land. There was no other sort of efficiency about her. Yet everybody was kind to Priscilla, everybody loved her and laughed at her to her face, and did not laugh behind her back. Everybody would have given her half of his last crust or the bigger share of his plum cake. These were pretty certain indications that we were all conscious of a pleasant weakness in the girl, and considered her not quite able to look after her own interests or fight her battle with the world. And Hollingsworth, perhaps because he had been the means of introducing Priscilla to her new abode, appeared to recognize her as his own especial charge. Her simple, careless, childish flow of spirits often made me sad. She seemed to me like a butterfly at play in a flickering bit of sunshine, and mistaking it for a broad and eternal summer. We sometimes hold mirth to a stricter accountability than sorrow. It must show good cause, or the echo of its laughter comes back drearily. Priscilla's gaiety, moreover, was of a nature that showed me how delicate an instrument she was, and what fragile harp-strings were her nerves. As they made sweet music at the airiest touch, it would require but a stronger one to burst them all asunder. Absurd as it might be, I tried to reason with her and persuade her not to be so joyous, thinking that if she would draw less lavishly upon her fund of happiness, it would last the longer. I remember doing so one summer evening, when we tired laborers sat looking on, like goldsmith's old folks under the village thorn-tree, while the young people were at their sports. "'What is the use or sense of being so very gay?' I said to Priscilla, while she was taking breath after a great frolic. "'I love to see a sufficient cause for everything, and I can see none for this.' "'Pray tell me now what kind of a world you imagine this to be, which you are so merry in.' "'I never think about it at all,' answered Priscilla, laughing. "'But this I am sure of. 
that it is a world where everybody is kind to me and where I love everybody. My heart keeps dancing within me, and all the foolish things which you see me do are only the motions of my heart. How can I be dismal if my heart will not let me? Have you nothing dismal to remember, I suggested? If not, then indeed you are very fortunate. Ah, said Priscilla slowly. And then came that unintelligible gesture when she seemed to be listening to a distant voice. For my part, I continued, beneficently seeking to overshadow her with my own sombre humour, my past life has been a tiresome one enough, yet I would rather look backward ten times than forward once. For little as we know of our life to come, we may be very sure, for one thing, that the good we aim at will not be attained. People never do get just the good they seek. If it come at all, it is something else, which they never dreamed of, and did not particularly want. Then again we may rest certain that our friends of to-day will not be our friends of a few years hence. But if we keep one of them, it will be at the expense of the others, and most probably we shall keep none. To be sure there are more to be had, but who cares about making a new set of friends, even should they be better than those around us? Not I, said Priscilla. I will live and die with these. Well, but let the future go, resumed I. As for the present moment, if we could look into the hearts where we wish to be most valued, what should you expect to see? One's own likeness in the innermost, holiest niche? Ah, I don't know. It may not be there at all. It may be a dusty image thrust aside into a corner and by and by to be flung out of doors where any foot may trample upon it. If not to-day, then to-morrow. And so, Priscilla, I do not see much wisdom in being so very merry in this kind of a world. It had taken me nearly seven years of worldly life to hive up the bitter honey which I here offered to Priscilla, and she rejected it. "'I don't believe one word of what you say,' she replied, laughing anew. "'You made me sad for a minute by talking about the past, "'but the past never comes back again. "'Do we dream the same dream twice? "'There is nothing else that I am afraid of.' "'So away she ran and fell down on the green grass, "'as it was often her luck to do, "'but got up again without any harm.' "'Priscilla, Priscilla!' cried Hollingsworth, who was sitting on the doorstep. "'You had better not run any more to-night. You will weary yourself too much. And do not sit down out of doors, for there is a heavy dew beginning to fall.' At his first word she went and sat down under the porch at Hollingsworth's feet, entirely contented and happy. What charm was there in his rude massiveness that so attracted and soothed this shadow-like girl? It appeared to me, who have always been curious in such matters, that Priscilla's vague and seemingly causeless flow of felicitous feeling was that with which love blesses inexperienced hearts before they begin to suspect what is going on within them. It transports them to the seventh heaven, and if you ask what brought them thither, they neither can tell nor care to learn, but cherish an ecstatic faith that there they shall abide forever." Zenobia was in the doorway, not far from Hollingsworth. She gazed at Priscilla in a very singular way. 
Indeed, it was a sight worth gazing at, and a beautiful sight, too, as the fair girl sat at the feet of that dark, powerful figure. Her air, while perfectly modest, delicate, and virgin-like, denoted her as swayed by Hollingsworth, attracted to him, and unconsciously seeking to rest upon his strength. I could not turn away my own eyes, but hoped that nobody, save Zenobia and myself, was witnessing this picture. It is before me now, with the evening twilight a little deepened by the dusk of memory. "'Come hither, Priscilla,' said Zenobia. "'I have something to say to you.' She spoke in little more than a whisper, but it is strange how expressive of moods a whisper may often be. Priscilla felt at once that something had gone wrong. "'Are you angry with me?' she asked, rising slowly and standing before Zenobia in a drooping attitude. "'What have I done? I hope you are not angry.' "'No, no, Priscilla,' said Hollingsworth, smiling. "'I will answer for it. She is not. "'You are the one little person in the world with whom nobody can be angry.' "'Angry with you, child! What a silly idea!' exclaimed Zenobia, laughing. "'No, indeed. But, my dear Priscilla, you are getting to be so very pretty that you absolutely need a duenna.' and as I am older than you, and have had my own little experience of life, and think myself exceedingly sage, I intend to fill the place of a maiden aunt. Every day I shall give you a lecture a quarter of an hour in length on the morals, manners, and proprieties of social life. When our pastoral shall be quite played out, Priscilla, my worldly wisdom may stand you in good stead." "'I am afraid you are angry with me,' repeated Priscilla sadly, for while she seemed as impressible as wax, the girl often showed a persistency in her own ideas, as stubborn as it was gentle. "'Dear me, what can I say to the child?' cried Zenobia in a tone of humorous vexation. "'Well, well, since you insist on my being angry, come to my room this moment and let me beat you.' Zenobia bade Hollingsworth good-night very sweetly, and nodded to me with a smile, but just as she turned aside with Priscilla into the dimness of the porch, I caught another glance at her countenance. It would have made the fortune of a tragic actress, could she have borrowed it for the moment when she fumbles in her bosom for the concealed dagger, or the exceedingly sharp bodkin, or mingles the ratsbane in her lover's bowl of wine, or her rival's cup of tea. Not that I in the least anticipated any such catastrophe, it being a remarkable truth that custom has in no one point a greater sway than over our modes of wreaking our wild passions. And besides, had we been in Italy instead of New England, it was hardly yet a crisis for the dagger or the bowl. It often amazed me, however, that Hollingsworth should show himself so recklessly tender towards Priscilla, and never once seemed to think of the effect which it might have upon her heart. But the man, as I have endeavoured to explain, was thrown completely off his moral balance, and quite bewildered as to his personal relations, by his great excrescence of a philanthropic scheme. I used to see, or fancy, indications that he was not altogether obtuse to Zenobia's influence as a woman, 
No doubt, however, he had a still more exquisite enjoyment of Priscilla's silent sympathy with his purposes, so unalloyed with criticism, and therefore more grateful than any intellectual approbation, which always involves a possible reserve of latent censure. A man, poet, prophet, or whatever he may be, readily persuades himself of his right to all the worship that is voluntarily tendered. In requital of so rich benefits as he was to confer upon mankind, it would have been hard to deny Hollingsworth the simple solace of a young girl's heart, which he held in his hand, and smelled, too, like a rosebud. But what if, while pressing out its fragrance, he should crush the tender rosebud in his grasp? As for Zenobia, I saw no occasion to give myself any trouble. With her native strength and her experience of the world, she could not be supposed to need any help of mine. Nevertheless, I was really generous enough to feel some little interest likewise for Zenobia, with all her faults, which might have been a great many besides the abundance that I knew of, she possessed noble traits, and a heart which must at least have been valuable while new. And she seemed ready to fling it away as uncalculatingly as Priscilla herself. I could not but suspect that, if merely at play with Hollingsworth, she was sporting with a power which she did not fully estimate or, if in earnest, it might chance between Zenobia's passionate force and his dark self-delusive egotism to turn out such earnest as would develop itself in some sufficiently tragic catastrophe, though the dagger and the bowl should go for nothing in it. Meantime the gossip of the community set them down as a pair of lovers. They took walks together and were not seldom encountered in the woodpaths, Hollingsworth deeply discoursing, in tones solemn and sternly pathetic, Zenobia with a rich glow on her cheeks, and her eyes softened from their ordinary brightness, looked so beautiful that had her companion been ten times a philanthropist, it seemed impossible but that one glance should melt him back into a man. Oftener than anywhere else, they went to a certain point on the slope of a pasture, commanding nearly the whole of our own domain, besides a view of the river and an airy prospect of many distant hills. The bond of our community was such that the members had the privilege of building cottages for their own residence within our precincts, thus laying a hearthstone and fencing in a home, private and peculiar to all desirable extent, while yet the inhabitants should continue to share the advantages of an associated life. It was inferred that Hollingsworth and Zenobia intended to rear their dwelling on this favorite spot. I mentioned these rumors to Hollingsworth in a playful way. Had you consulted me, I went on to observe, I should have recommended a site farther to the left, just a little withdrawn into the wood, with two or three peeps at the prospect among the trees. You will be in the shady vale of years long before you can raise any better kind of shade around your cottage, if you build it on this bare slope. "'But I offer my edifice as a spectacle to the world,' said Hollingsworth, "'that it may take example and build many another like it. "'Therefore I mean to set it on the open hillside.' twist these words how i might they offered no very satisfactory import 
It seemed hardly probable that Hollingsworth should care about educating the public taste in the department of cottage architecture, desirable as such improvement certainly was. End of chapter 9